Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. Tune in each week as we dive into topics related to fiscal policy, like health care, taxes, national security, the national debt, and more. You'll hear discussions with experts, elected officials, and industry leaders on how the nation's fiscal and economic challenges impact current and future generations, and we'll explore some of the solutions. I'm your host and National Grassroots and Outreach Director for the Concord Coalition, Chase Hageman. We're still recording remotely amidst the coronavirus pandemic, and today, Concord Coalition Executive Director Bob Bixby, Director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future, Ben Ritz, and Fiscal Policy Analyst, Brendan McDermott, will join me to discuss PPI's recent publication on a roadmap for recovery and the Congressional Budget Office's April 2020 budget review. But before we dive into today's discussion, let's kick off the program with our first segment, Facing the News. We will take a few minutes to see what is going on in the world of fiscal policy this week. House Democrats have unveiled a more than $3 trillion coronavirus bill with a second round of stimulus payments, and Republicans appear to have already rejected it out of hand. It's less an opening bid in a bipartisan negotiation than an expression of House Democrats' priorities that they hope will resonate with the public as the nation suffers through the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. In fact, the budget tracker for CQ Roll Call is reporting that producing a bipartisan relief package that could actually become law is going to take more time and effort as both parties are obviously on divergent paths. It could take a month to pass legislation, which some leaders view as appropriate in order to see how effective previously passed packages have been. The federal budget deficit for April alone was an estimated $737 billion, a record-breaking figure for a single month that underscored the toll of the COVID-19 pandemic. If confirmed by the Treasury Department, the $737 billion shortfall would easily exceed the current record of $235 billion in one month. At the peak of the Great Recession, the one-month deficit reached only $159 billion. The CBO predicts the deficit for the full fiscal year ending September 30th to hit $3.7 trillion dollars which would be more than twice the previous record of $1.4 trillion in fiscal year 2009. Up next, I'll be joined on the show by Director of PPI's Center for Funding America's Future, Ben Ritz, Fiscal Policy Analyst, Brendan McDermott, and Concord's Executive Director, Bob Bixby, to discuss PPI's recent publication on a roadmap for recovery. We will be back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Chase Hageman, and I'm joined on the show by Concord Coalition Executive Director Bob Bixby, Ben Ritz, and Brennan McDermott 
Ben is the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future Director. Prior to joining PPI, Ben staffed the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Retirement Security and Personal Savings, and he worked on the federal budget issues at BPC, including sequestration, budget process reform, and the federal debt limit. Before that, he was actually the Legislative Outreach Director for the Concord Coalition, so Ben is my former colleague, so it's always nice to catch up with him. Brendan is a fiscal policy analyst at PPI. Before joining PPI, he worked on Capitol Hill with Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester and the Democratic staff of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And Bob, you know very well, he's a regular contributor. Welcome back to the show, Bob, and welcome Ben and Brendan. Thanks, Chase. Thanks for having us. Well, welcome to the show. We're, we're happy to have you on Facing the Future. And, and part of the reason why we're having you on today is to discuss a recent paper the two of you co-authored called A Roadmap to Recovery. And I'm assuming it has something to do with the economic fallout as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So just for the benefit of our listeners, can you give a quick summary of, of what you were trying to communicate in this particular article? And uh, from what I understand, it picks up where Congress left off. So maybe talk about how it fills in some of the gaps there as well. So what we wanted to do with this was outline what we think the next steps in the economic and public health recovery, with more of a focus on the economic component, uh, will need to be over the coming months. And so what the needs that we have between uh, now and the summer for, are different from the needs we'll have between uh, the end of the summer and next year and going forward. This is going to be a uh, a multi-month, probably multi-year recovery effort. And we wanted to show what are the policies we need in the short term? What are the policies we need in the medium term? And what do we need longer term? And so after Congress finished with the initial wave of responses, we wanted to outline what we think uh, those next stages look like. And from what I understand, the paper sort of has three buckets uh, set up uh, and that you sort of throw these different policy proposals within those buckets. Can you sort of outline what those are and uh, describe maybe what aspect of the economy or in what way they're, you're trying to help businesses or individuals? Sure. Uh, so the three main categories we focus on are supporting state and local governments, uh, strengthening automatic stabilizers, uh, and then preparing to restart the economy. Uh, and I'll let Brendan talk a little bit about uh, state and local governments since he has been uh, doing a lot of work on that lately. All right. So, Brendan, it sounds like Ben uh, threw you under the bus on getting this conversation started. Uh, hasn't Congress done something in terms of previous packages uh, to try and help state and local governments? Uh, what are you advocating for possibly doing more of? Sure. So uh, you're right that Congress has already taken uh, a couple of very good steps to support state and local governments. Um, in the Families First Act, which was the second uh, bill related to the uh, pandemic that Congress passed, they increased the share of Medicaid, uh, which is a partnership between the federal government and state governments that the federal government is going to pay for. Um, and then in the CARES Act, which was the big bill, they passed a um, $150 billion fund that would uh, help finance uh, costs directly related to the COVID-19 outbreak that uh, states, local governments, and tribal governments um, and the territories are experiencing. Um, for most uh, local government, for most cities, that would be through their state. 
Um, and they also allowed the Federal Reserve to buy uh, municipal bonds and decided to back some of those bonds, um, which are basically how uh, state and local governments sell debt, which is going to be important since a lot of state and local governments are pushing back their tax deadlines and are going to need money to fill while they wait for, for that money to come. Um, but there's a couple of reasons that that is not uh, going to be adequate uh, through the duration of this crisis. Um, for one, uh, the Medicaid support that the federal government has passed is still less than it passed even during the Great Recession for a crisis that is directly related to the healthcare system and is probably going to be uh, deeper. State and local governments are suffering because uh, with people not working and with people not shopping and buying things, the income taxes and the sales taxes that normally support state and local governments are, are dissipating, they're disappearing. Um, and meanwhile, they're going to have to spend more on programs like Medicaid or unemployment insurance that, that benefit lower income people who there will be more of um, in the near future. Um, and so even with that support that they've already provided, it's clear that uh, from a lot of different analyses that state and local governments are going to need a lot more uh, moving forward. Um, the $150 billion uh, fund that Congress passed is only directed towards expenses related to reacting to this pandemic, not to uh, the revenue losses uh, from the slowed down economy. That actually leads into a, a question I had, Brendan. The first package didn't allow states to sort of create a stopgap for lost revenue, from what I understand. And Congress is currently talking about future packages. Are they thinking they'll allow states and local governments to use any additional or, or new aid or relief uh, to, to basically sure up lost revenue? Or are we going to see some, basically what's on the table right now that Congress is even considering? Sure. So, um, yes, they are. Uh, that uh, was a deal that was, was reached a while ago that whatever future money would be coming down the pipeline uh, would be made available uh, for state and local governments to use to fill whatever financial needs they have um, because of the economic fallout, not just the uh, public health reaction. Um, I think we're still waiting to see exactly what it's going to look like when this uh, package gets formed, um, probably in the next couple of days. But we do expect that at least um, uh, the House package is probably going to include some money for state and local governments, um, and that money is going to be available for their economic needs, not just uh, reacting to the pandemic itself. And Bob, I could keep these questions going all day, but I'm wondering if you have any for uh, Ben and Brendan, uh, particularly on the state and local aid uh, side of things, since we haven't gotten to the other two buckets yet. Yeah, I'll just uh, jump in on the state and local um aspect. Uh, there, there really is developed quite a partisan divide over that since the last bill passed. And of course, Mitch McConnell famously suggested that maybe the states could declare bankruptcy. Uh, kind of drawing a, a line in the sand there. Um, but I wanted to, to ask, you know, one of, the, one of the issues that comes up is whether or not the, you know, by providing money to the states, particularly non-targeted money for COVID relief, uh, just for, you know, for relief from general revenue loss. Uh, does that constitute bailing out the states and set a bad precedent? Uh, you know, the argument is made that uh, the federal government should not step in and bail out state governments that have made poor fiscal choices in the past. How, how would you uh, react to that argument? 
Um, well, I would certainly say that uh, it, it is not a bailout because the any any decision that states have made up to this point is not the reason that there is a pandemic going on. Um, this this pandemic is its own cost, its own crisis, independent of whatever was was pre-existing. And just given the scale of what it looks like, state and local governments are going to lose out on or are going to need just to maintain normal operations. Um, it seems really unlikely that money from the federal government is going to somehow reward states for any bad behavior or allow the state. I, I would be very surprised if you see very many states using that money and using those resources um, for things besides, you know, reacting to the literal economic costs that they're experiencing now. Um, so even, e even a well-managed state would be swamped in this environment, I think is... Uh, absolutely. And Brendan, did you by any chance recently uh, maybe, I don't know, calculate how much that loss might be to state and local governments that you... You, you took the question right out of my mouth, Ben. I was going to go right down to what, what range of costs are we, are we expecting here? What are you calling for and how would you deliver it? Sure. Um, so uh, PPI just released an interactive calculator that people can download on our website um, and input different estimates of what the economy might look like in the near future. And that will show you if the economy went that way, roughly how much more money would state and local governments need in order to not have to cut things like healthcare or education or raise taxes. Um, we estimate using CBO's uh, estimates for what the economy is going to look like, that state and local governments are going to need at least 500 billion more dollars uh, through the end of 2021 just to maintain their, their pre-existing operations. Um, and that is with them using up a lot of the reserves that these states have built up, uh, depending on how comfortable you were asking states to use up all of their resources that they've saved and that they might need for, for some other issue in the near future. Um, if you were to not ask states to use any of their reserves, uh, you'd be looking at something closer to $680 billion. Well, one more question before we leave this. I don't want to have the, the whole show on, on state and local governments, but I think uh, we haven't seen the, the Democratic uh, proposal yet. Uh, there was, uh, I read some comments from Speaker Pelosi about floating a trillion dollars or something out there and talking about it, you know, lasting for a couple of years which confused me a little bit uh, because one of the, you know, one of the goals you'd think is to keep things relatively targeted, not be making grants that would be two or three years out. Uh, did I misunderstand that or what's your understanding of what the time frame would be on state and local aid? So I think it's, it's sort of unclear right now what they're looking at. I think it kind of depends on what form the aid is going to take. So uh, maybe jumping around to our, our third bucket, restarting the economy. Uh, there are policies like uh, infrastructure spending that go through the states uh, that may be above and beyond the existing shortfall. And so if the, and I don't know, this is what the house bills uh, including, I'm just, I'm just uh, kind of guessing here, but if they were including additional stimulus policies on top of filling in the general revenue gap, uh, I think that might make more sense to have a trillion dollar price tag. But we're just talking about the the existing revenue shortfall caused by the pandemic. Um, I, I think that a trillion does, that does sound a little bit high to, to me personally. All right, Ben, I love your eagerness, but we're going to stop on the third bucket for a second and go back to your second bucket talking about automatic stabilizers, because I have a sense that 
those automatic stabilizers and policies you might recommend uh, probably feed in a little bit to restarting the overall economy. So let's go to bucket number two. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, we don't talk about automatic stabilizers very much. So can you give just a really short summary on what they are and then what you're calling upon Congress to do about them? Sure. So automatic stabilizers are really any policy that pumps money into the economy naturally by design during a recession. And conversely, uh, a good automatic stabilizer will also uh, pull that stimulus out during the recovery. So uh, two traditional examples of automatic stabilizers, uh, the progressive income tax code uh, is a good one. As, uh, as wages rise, people are bumped into higher income tax brackets, they pay more in taxes, uh, and that reduces the deficit. Conversely, when people lose jobs, they, their, their wages go down, they're paying less in taxes, and that's more money that remains in the economy instead of in the government's hands. Uh, another good example of this on the spending side is unemployment insurance. Uh, just by the design of having an unemployment insurance program, when unemployment, the unemployment rate goes up, the economy slows down, spending on that naturally increases. So that helps stabilize the economy. And then as the uh, recession ends, the economy recovers, people get their jobs back, then spending on unemployment drops. And so this is what we're talking about when we're saying automatic stabilizers. All right. So in your policy paper, what are you calling upon Congress to do about those automatic stabilizers? I'm assuming you want to see them beefed up. Is, is there anything new you're bringing to the table in terms of stabilizers uh, or how far are you wanting Congress to go in terms of expanding uh, existing ones? So I think that there are, there are a few important uh, ones that we're looking at. I think the biggest one right now is uh, strengthening unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance already has something of an automatic stabilizer built in, uh, both you know, in the way that I described, and also there's an extended benefits program uh, that allows people to collect benefits for a little bit longer when their state enters a recession. But we saw in, 2000, in the 2008 financial crisis and the recession that followed that, uh, even that extended benefits program was not enough for most people. Uh, so Congress did a, an extension of how long people could collect those benefits temporarily during the recession. We would like to see that put on autopilot and uh, tied directly to the, the state of the economy so that for the duration of this crisis, there people are able to collect benefits for longer if it ends up being a drawn out recession. Uh, I think we'd also like to see some triggers on uh, Congress greatly increased the percent of lost wages that are replaced by unemployment insurance. And they did that up until I think it's the end of June. But I think this pandemic, the recession is going to go well beyond that. Uh, Congressman Beyer, uh, Senator Kane, a few others put out a bill recently that would uh, tie that bump up to the unemployment uh, rate and the duration of the crisis. And so the longer it goes on, those increased benefits are extended. Uh, I don't know that we would have designed those exact specifics, but I think the concept there is exactly right. You want the unemployment insurance boost to last as long as the unemployment insurance boost is needed and not have some arbitrary cutoff date. Uh, and then I think there are, there are some other ones like uh, boosting support for low-income assistance, like the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, also known as food stamps. Uh, that's another program that we would like to see beefed up. And then some of these small business supports, the, the Paycheck Protection Act, uh, Employee Retention Tax Credit, uh, these were policies that are put in place to help on the business side. Uh, and although I think that there are certainly ways these, these 
programs could be better designed. I think the fundamental uh, architecture, the, the goals they're trying to meet are correct. And we want some form of business support, whether it's, it's these exact programs or something similar. We want that to last as long as it's needed. So the Paycheck Protection Program exhausted its money within the first three weeks. Uh, and that's, that's just something we don't want to see happen again. We want these programs to be there as long as they're needed. So you, you mentioned being in support of similar programs or similar expansions to make sure that individuals and businesses are getting the support they need for the duration of the pandemic. Something I've seen floated out there, and I think there's a handful of senators that are putting a bill on the table, uh, is the concept of at least a short-term universal basic income. And that's something that presidential candidates have been talking about this cycle too. Would that fall into the category of something uh, you would support in terms of something similar, or is that a little bit off base in terms of having maybe a more targeted approach uh, as we try to get to a point of recovery? So I think there's an important distinction to be drawn between these stimulus, I'll call them the stimulus checks uh, and, and universal basic income. The big difference being that the stimulus checks are meant to be a temporary infusion of cash into the economy to support it when demand is low. Uh, I think that's very different from a universal basic income, which which would last you know, in perpetuity in the recovery. And I think it's very important for people to understand that what might be good fiscal policy in the middle of a crisis is not necessarily the same thing that would be good fiscal policy during an economic expansion. And I'm sure this being a Concord podcast, we'll get into that later. Uh, but so, so I'll just, I think that's, that's an important thing. As far as the, the stimulus checks themselves, uh, I think there is an argument for uh, putting those on autopilot, doing those on a monthly basis uh, for the duration of the crisis, the same way there was an argument in favor of doing the same for UI and low-income support programs. Now, that said, I personally am starting to sour on the checks for, for a few reasons, uh, the biggest of which is that it's not particularly well-targeted. Uh, and I think that, you know, if we're trying to decide between giving everybody, you know, 1200 or $2,000 a month, versus targeting the benefits to people who need them most, uh, I think the latter is more important. You know, a, a $1,200 check that is not going to be enough for somebody who has lost their job is unemployed. At the same time, uh, if you're gainfully employed, you're making as much as you were last year, you probably don't need that extra $1,200. It's not really going to make that big of a difference. And so I think that even though you could you could design that as an automatic stabilizer, it's it's really at the bottom of the list in terms of what I think are, are good policies right now. Not not the bottom. We're going to get to some of the bottom policies later, but it's it's one of the less. <laughs> and uh, Baba, I, I think you're about to ask a question. I'll kick it over to you. Uh, yeah, I I wanted to um, get your opinion on one of the arguments that's sure to come up on the uh, extension of unemployment benefits, enhanced unemployment benefits. Uh, you know, several people pointed out that with the extra $600, uh, many, many, you know, many workers, uh, I've seen estimates over, over half and end up getting more on unemployment than they would if they went back to work, which is a, uh, obviously a poor economic in incentive and maybe a disincentive for getting the economy started again when the time is right. Um, are you arguing for the continued $600 bonus and for how long and what about the perverse incentives? So uh, first thing I'll say is I'm more arguing on the expansion uh, extension uh, conceptually. I think that 
Uh, the 600, you're absolutely right about that. The, and just as a little bit of background for people, the, the original goal of Congress was to basically replace the amount of lost wages that people had. And then it was discovered that we couldn't actually do that because the way state unemployment insurance systems were being run, they, couldn't, they didn't have the technical capacity to actually do that calculation. And so uh, part of the downside of having uh, underinvested in basic government infrastructure for so long is that we, we really weren't set up to do what we wanted. And so instead, Congress did this across the board $600 increase, which you know, on average gives people what they had lost before, but it does create these perverse economic incentives. And I think that one of the goals as we're looking from, uh, as we're moving from the immediate short-term response to a longer-term economic support is to try to figure out how we can target those benefits in a little bit better way. So uh, I think one goal should be uh, drawing that down over time. I think that in the, in the very short term, as we're literally trying to get people to stay home, I'm not as worried about uh, the economic disincentives because the immediate public health goal is to actually get some people to work less. But I think that as we're shifting from public health to economic recovery, uh, we are going to have to draw that down. And I think one benefit of automatic triggers is that we can come up with a system that pulls that back gradually, automatically, instead of, uh, you know, possibly even extending that beyond the life of its usefulness. Yeah, one way to avoid the uh, vicissitudes of the of the PPP uh, that has been discussed on both sides of the aisle is a, a simple uh guaranteed paycheck. In other words, not, not the 1000 or 2000 a month that Chase was talking about, but just saying to employers, will the federal government will just pay your payroll for a while. That would keep everybody at work and uh, people wouldn't have to go running to the bank to try to get a loan and competing with other people. And if you didn't have a, you know, all of the well-known uh, problems with uh, administrative problems with the PPP. Um, is that something you think should be on the, on the on the table for the next round? Yes, I I, I absolutely do. I think that uh, when we're talking about no saying you know extend PPP and the small business supports uh, conceptually, but maybe changing the specifics. That's sort of what I, I had in mind. I think that uh, the PPP was was not terribly uh, it was not perfectly designed. I think that. Uh, there are better alternative ways to uh, support businesses and, and employees. And I think that, uh, that having gone with a model like that, which I think we're seeing more of in Europe, uh, that, that might be a preferable alternative going forward. I think that's definitely something that should be looked at. I guess quickly, I just want to drive home the idea that what, what's so powerful about automatic stabilizers is that you can tune the program. It, 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 as long as you design it well, it can't spend too much or too little. It is, it is by design spending as much as you need and no more. Um, so I think it's a, a very responsive way to do fiscal policy. Um, and most of the automatic stabilizers that we're talking about, like the social safety net programs or unemployment, uh, have dual powers. They can both help sustain people and, and get our economy through the public health crisis. And by putting money into the hands of people who, who will need to spend it, uh, they really do an effective job of stimulating the economy later on once we're, we're moving into that stage. 
Okay, on to restarting the economy. In your article, you talk about what might be considered, quote, good policies. I'm assuming that means there's also, quote, bad policies. So could you throw out there for our listeners some of the policies you think would be good right now and maybe looking long term in terms of getting the economy going again? And then highlight perhaps some bad policies and then why they're bad, whether they might be a good idea overall, but perhaps the timing is off or their focus is off or things of that nature. Sure. So on the good policies front, I think that uh, here we're looking at kind of traditional stimulus policies. And so, uh, and the reason I say traditional stimulus as opposed to what we're dealing with right now is that goes back to the question we're talking about with the unemployment insurance of uh, we're not, the goal right now isn't actually to stimulate the economy. It's to keep it afloat while we deal with the public health crisis. So good, good stimulative restarting the economy policies are things that get people spending and back to work once it is safe to do so. And so here I think some of the good policies are things like uh, public investments that we already needed, uh, building roads, bridges, infrastructure. Uh, we've needed this for a long time. Government can borrow at low interest rates. We saw that uh, infrastructure can be a relatively uh, good way to stimulate the economy, create good jobs. And so uh, I think policies like that are, are good restart the economy policies. Uh, and other things that reduce disincentives for commerce, so uh, cutting taxes on, on consumption, sales taxes, is another one that could have the benefit of increasing demand. Uh, policies like that are what we think of when we think of good, uh, good stimulus policies to restart the economy. Uh, in terms of bad policies, uh, we put out another piece, uh, I think just a couple days after the Roadmap for Recovery, uh, we tell the eight bad ideas that have no place in future stimulus bills. So really getting to the point. Uh, and I think here we've seen kind of two, two categories of, of bad, well, maybe three categories of bad policies. First category is policies that uh, from the right, we've seen a lot, of, a lot of different, actually from both sides, we've seen a lot of tax cut policies, mostly from the right. So that's one category is those tax cuts. And so then the other two categories are uh, policies that really uh, are uh, like the tax stuff, they're spending side policies that are unrelated, or they're policies that uh, would even go further and actually exacerbate the damage of the pandemic. And we may have to have you back on the show later to go into more detail on the bevy of potentially bad policies as we get closer to Congress maybe passing another package. Uh, but unfortunately, we're running shorter on time. And there's at least one more question I have. But before I ask it, Bob, do you have anything on jumpstarting the economy? Well, I assume that anything we did to jumpstart the economy, would you'd still have to look ahead a bit on the um, the unsustainable fiscal outlook that we went into all of this with. So, And you took my last question, so take it away, Bob. It's all you to the finish line. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I realize that that is the last question because it's the last thing in the sequencing. You know, I agree with the fight the virus, try to get the economy jump started, and then deal with the fact that the uh, budget was on an unsustainable track before we began. So, uh, you know, when do <laughs> when do we get back to that? Uh, and and is you know how is that part of a uh, a long term fiscal uh, or economic sustainability plan? So I think in the short term, uh, we're going to be doing a lot more spending. We estimate that the, the deficit this year is going to be somewhere between four and five trillion dollars that the rate we're going, uh, probably going to have elevated deficits for the next couple of years. And so what that means is we're going to come out of this crisis 
uh, with the national debt as a percent of GDP being higher than it was at any point in history. You know, we thought we'd have uh, a few more years before we got to that point, but it's, it's bringing the future now. Uh, the Social Security and Medicare trust funds are probably going to run out within the next decade. Uh, there are, these are these long-term fiscal challenges that aren't really long-term anymore. They're, they're more medium-term now. And I think that addressing them is important both uh, to make sure that we, they don't cause a crisis in and of themselves, but also to make sure that we have resources for the future so that the next time we have a national emergency, and unfortunately it seems like we're, we're, we're going to have one at some point. You know, we thought the, the financial crisis was a once-in-a-generation economic catastrophe, and then we managed to top it a decade later. Uh, and so I think that coming into these crises where we need to spend a lot of money, we will be better off and have more fiscal flexibility if we uh, enter on a sustainable trajectory with reduced debt, as opposed to if we continue to pile the debt on in both good times and bad. So it's not that this uh, recent run-up in, in debt is something that we can just continue in perpetuity and say, hey, we're, <laughs> we're free. No more. Yeah, no, that was, that was one. So in the, when we're talking about some of the other uh, bad policies, one of the things we had in our eight, eight bad ideas is, is all, there, there are a bunch of proposals to do temporary spending now uh, or take what would be temporary spending now and make it permanent. So going back to the UBI example. Uh, what might be a good temporary economic support policy, uh, especially if it's deficit finance, is probably not going to be a good long-term policy. We want to make sure that we're providing the support we need in the crisis now, but that doesn't mean we can continue doing this forever. I feel like I could summarize this conversation by saying it's necessary, but it's not free. It's a good so, way to put it, Chase. That being the case, we are out of time. This is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Chase Hageman. You've been listening to me, Bob Bixby, Ben Ritz, and Brendan McDermott. We discussed PPI's publication concerning a roadmap for recovery as we come out of this pandemic and rebuild our economy. Thank you all for joining the show. Thanks, Chase. Up Thanks. next, Bob will be back, and he'll be joining me to discuss some new numbers from the Congressional Budget Office from the April Budget Review. We'll be back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Chase Hageman. I'm joined once again on the show by Bob Bixby. He's a regular contributor on the program, and he's Concord's executive director. Welcome back, Bob. Thanks, Chase. As always, I thoroughly enjoy talking to you on Facing the Future, and we are going to discuss a report that is relatively hot off the press. It's the Congressional Budget Office's monthly budget review for April 2020. This happens to be a rather pivotal month, and uh, there's some serious data in this one. So uh, maybe uh, before we dive into it, you can give a quick uh, rundown or reminder for our listeners of, of what the budget review is for CBO. Yeah, every month the uh, CBO puts out a a review of the budget, which is which is why they call it the monthly budget review. <laughs> Man, that's so I, so intuitive. I, I just yeah. Wow. Well, this one, this one came out in April, which is why they call it the monthly budget review for April. Uh, April tends to be a pivotal month. Normally, the budget, the monthly budget review, is something that you kind of look at. You know, well, what happens in one particular month isn't all that important. Uh, it's really the cumulative thing. But April does tend to be an important month because there are a lot of tax filing deadlines in, in April. So it can be a real bellwether of where the budget is going to end up, where the deficit or surplus in the old days 
might end up for the year. Uh, so we thought we would put together a, a review of the budget review. Uh, this one is, is really stunning. I mean, uh, nobody's ever seen anything like it because uh, April is normally a surplus month uh, because of all the money that comes in from the income tax filings. And uh, th this was a deficit uh, in, in April, which is unusual in itself, but, but the deficit was something like $737 billion uh, for April versus a $160 billion surplus last year. So that gives you some sort of a comparison about how quickly things have changed. Have we ever had that high of a deficit in one month? Uh, or at least I, in, in I, recent history, modern, maybe since I've been alive. So give me 30, 40 well, I don't years. know. I, I, not that I can recall. Uh, <laughs> I, were, there, were there any factors that uh, especially contributed to such a high deficit? I know that overall uh, the economy is just um, plummeting very rapidly, and I'm assuming revenue was down. But were there any other additional factors that really uh, pushed this deficit exceptionally high? Well, yeah. I mean, there were there were a couple, and just to give you a a, a sense of the proportion, the actually the revenue uh, fell by fifty five percent compared to last year. The spending increased by one hundred and sixty percent. So uh, you were going pretty heavy on both sides there. Really, on the revenue side, I uh, don't think the uh, you know the full impact of the economic downturn, the coronavirus is uh, caught up to us yet. Basically, the revenue uh, shortfall was caused by the administration um, postponing the filing date for income taxes until July. So that money, you know, didn't come in. Uh, it will come in in July, some of it, but it will be reduced from, uh, you know, because of the economy, and as CBO pointed out, between now and then, there may be some businesses and, uh, and individuals that go into bankruptcy and uh, that, that money isn't going to get paid. So um, some of that will, on the revenue side, will be recouped. But you, you did see the beginning of some of the, the uh, tax uh, credits um, from the CARES Act. Uh, so you're beginning to see the first you know, drops of snow in a, in a blizzard. On the spending side, a lot more happened uh, in April because you had the uh, stuff that won't be recouped because you had the uh, the checks, the individual checks go out, uh, the $1,200 checks. They began to go out in April. And uh, there were some, um, that was the biggest uh, change. But there were also some Medicare, uh, had some accelerated payments that went out the door quickly. Uh, hospital payments, grants to states and, and local governments. A lot of that stuff that was in the first, well, the four, first four acts of Congress that were passed in response to this began to pay out in April. So while the deficit was very big in April, we're probably going to have some, uh, some very big deficits to come. This is by no means the, the end of the, that. It is it is the beginning. We're beginning to see the first effects of the coronavirus uh, on the budget. And that was one of my next questions was, you didn't make it sound like that even though the, the tax filing deadline had been pushed to July and that was perhaps a factor in why April's deficit was so big, 
you, you, you don't really give the impression that uh, many, whether they're government officials, elected leaders, or economists, uh, expect to see, um, uh, I guess, a bridging of that deficit gap, but perhaps a, a much wider gap by the time we get to the end of the fiscal year. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. Is that this? Uh, we we maybe do we're doing a show on the May monthly budget report. Uh, <laughs> Suddenly, June. the budget review is very important. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. Uh, it's um, it's amazing, but I, you know, we just have seen the tip of the iceberg with the drop off in economic growth. I mean, it uh, fell at about a almost a five percent rate. Uh, in the in the first quarter, but everybody expects the second quarter to be much 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 worse. You know, as high as like forty percent on an annual rate. So that's going to uh, feed into the budget. Uh, they'll probably be and, and some of these things like the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. In April, that was not a huge expense because there were just some preliminary expenditures. Uh, but when uh, these loans, which will turn into grants, begin to pay out, uh, that'll show up uh, big time in the budget by hundreds of billions of dollars that aren't showing up yet. So, yeah, some of these things are just beginning to kick in. And then there's the fact that Congress is probably going to enact some other uh, measures that might increase, you know, their increased spending or cut taxes further. So CBO is still suggesting that by the end of the year, the full full year's deficit is going to be approaching $4 trillion. That's, I mean, before this, that was nearly the size of the entire budget. So that's, for me, that's just hard to wrap my mind around $4 trillion just in debt for a relatively short period of time. Uh, a question I have, you mentioned that in the uh, PPP, a lot of those loans are going to turn to grants, which basically permanently uh, increases the, the, the debt because it's not going to be repaid. Is, is Congress uh, putting things on the table right now that might, like I remember in the Great Recession, we had certain loans or programs that uh, corporations ended up paying back. So some of that uh, relief uh, or stimulus ended up coming back into the federal budget. Are we looking at anything like that right now? Or are we just focused on trying to stop the bleeding uh, forgive the pun, given that we're talking about a health crisis. Well, the federal budget probably won't recoup much from the PPP loans because the idea is really to uh, encourage businesses to take them uh, and have very, very low loans or turn them into grants. But there's another part of the CARES Act that had $500 billion or so set aside for other loans to uh, larger businesses or industries. And, uh, and, and that's part of the money that the Fed will uh, use to uh, make some of the loans that the Fed is going to make. And, um, you know, the Fed has to get uh, a return. The Fed can't make grants. So some of those, some of those loans will be repaid, as happened during the, the Great Recession, and will uh, recoup that. In fact, that was part of the scoring of the CARES Act. Uh, if you looked at the fine print, there was about 400 and something billion that CBO assumed would come back. So uh, in, it was the loans are repaid. So um, the official score from CBO of the CARES Act was lower than most people thought because of how CBO scored those loans. But so I guess 
maybe the bad news is that all of this is happening without those loans being uh, part of it. So yeah, it, there are some things that the government's going to um, recoup, but uh, bottom line is we're still looking at a $4 trillion deficit uh, by the end of this year, and it probably isn't going to come back much uh, next year. And one more question before we go. I've, I've seen quotes pop up in the news about some elected leaders are expressing some concern over the size of the deficit and the long-term addition of, of mass amounts of debt, given that we already have a $23 trillion uh, national debt. Do you think that's a sentiment that should continue? Are we, are we at the point where we can start to be concerned about those long-term deficits and the long-term addition to our debt? Or are we at a point in your mind where this is still such an imminent crisis that really the blank check perspective is still an appropriate one? Uh, you should never forget about the deficit and the debt, uh, but you can put it at the back of your mind or on the back burner. Uh, and I think we are still in that situation. I wouldn't say blank check is appropriate. I'd still go with the timely targeted and temporary uh, approach uh, so that you're not making the long-term problem worse. But you know, bad as the number is for April, it's important to remember that it was done deliberately. I mean, it's not like it came from nowhere. Uh, and there are other numbers that you could cite too. I mean, the fact that we've got uh, about a, a, a million three uh, people infected by the coronavirus in the United States, uh, and you know over eighty thousand deaths, uh, many of those in the in the month of April. Um, so uh, yes, the the number is large, but the problem, both the health problem and the economic problem, is large, and this is just one of the things that uh, that we're going to have to work through. Uh, you know, the first thing to, frankly, the way to get the budget back under control is get the economy growing again. And the way to get the economy growing again is to get the virus under control. And uh, that, that may take a while. This is Facing the Future. I've been talking to Cocker Coalition Executive Director Bob Bixby about the CBO's monthly budget review for April 2020. Thanks again for joining the show, Bob. All right. Thanks, Chase. You've been Facing the Future. I'm Chase Hageman. Thanks for listening.